Well, this morning we're continuing to make application from Genesis chapter 19, where God intervened in history to bring judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we've been looking at the whole area of what the Bible has to say on the topic of God's design for male and female marriage, sex, and procreation. And last week we began to look at a very specific question that comes up a lot in our culture today, and that is, is the Bible culturally conditioned? That is, is the Bible simply a mirror of the times? Is it simply a reflection of the values and felt needs of the surrounding culture? Or is the Bible a true word from God who created all things and who sent his son to redeem us, who is speaking to us from outside of human culture according to our true needs, regardless of our feelings and perceptions? Last week, we looked at the spirituality of the Roman Empire, the culture into which the gospel of the resurrected Christ first came. And we asked the question, how well did the gospel accommodate that existing culture? How, how much did it reflect it? Or how much was it bringing something new? This morning, we're going to ask the same question, but we're going to look specifically at sexuality within the Roman Empire. So our text this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. These are the words of God. Do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray you would open this word to us today. We need it just as much as the church in Corinth did 2,000 years ago. Give us understanding. Help us to see your glory and your truth and the health that is here, that we might speak it and live it in our own day. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, if you want to understand sexuality within the Roman Empire at the time that the gospel first began to be preached, here's the bottom line. The sexuality within the empire directly reflected the spirituality. The sexuality within the empire directly reflected the spirituality. Just as the Romans embraced every god, every god they knew about, whether Greek, Roman, or Egyptian, even so, they embraced virtually every form of sexuality as well. And the two, the spirituality and the sexuality, very much went together. For you see, the temples of the gods in that day were often staffed with sacred prostitutes so that the ecstasy of sex could be joined with the ecstasy of pagan worship. And the prostitutes would be of every sort of variety, heterosexual, homosexual, hermaphrodite, so named after the god hermaphroditos, who was a god who, according to legend, was fused with a nymph and thus became both a male and a female or something in between. And so a hermaphrodite was what uh, basically ancient version of what our postmodern culture would call a bisexual, except that that was not just their practice. They tried to look that way as well, like it would be hard to tell, are they male or are they female? What are they? That was the idea. So there were hermaphrodite prostitutes as well. And the city of Corinth, to whom our sermon text is written, is actually a very good example for us to understand culture within the Roman Empire because Corinth was a Roman colony. Now, we think of a colony, it means one thing to us, but it was something, it was an official status in that day. A Roman colony meant that Corinth was constituted by the government of the empire itself. Uh, in fact, Corinth was established by Julius Caesar himself. So it, it, it's a city with a charter, it's designed, it's built, and the whole purpose of Corinth then is to be Rome to the world. Corinth is to be a city on a hill on behalf of the Roman Empire, on behalf of the genius of Rome. So that was the whole purpose for Corinth. Corinth was in Greece It was only about 50 miles as the crow flies away from Athens. Athens, historically, going back centuries, was the world-famous intellectual city, and she still carried that legacy. But in terms of just power and wealth and glitz and prestige and status within the empire, Athens was left in the dust by Corinth. Corinth was where it was at. And so you saw the spirituality and sexuality of the empire very much displayed there in Corinth, along with wealth and glitz, also extreme poverty, all of this mixed together. Basically, in our own day, if you picture taking San Francisco and kind of blending it with Hollywood, that's pretty much Corinth in that day. So the the city was filled with temples to the various Roman, Greek, and Egyptian gods, temples to Aphrodite, Apollo, Asclepius, Hermes, shrines to Athena and Poseidon, and sanctuaries to Zeus and Apollo and Jupiter and Hera. And 
one of the most famous temples was the temple to Aphrodite. That's the Greek name. In the Latin, it would be Venus. It was the goddess of love, beauty, pleasure, passion, and procreation. Now, according to the first century Greek historian Strabo, the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth was staffed with 1,000 prostitutes. That gives you a picture of how much the spiritual and sexuality, all of that went together in their day. And this kind of prostitution was integrated with religion to gods throughout the city, so much so that it was not uh, uncommon to hear prayers in that day, public prayers being offered up, asking the gods to send more prostitutes. So this kind of immorality was considered normal in that day. The famous Roman statesman Cicero uh, wrote about this fact. He said, and I quote, Is there anyone who thinks that youth should be forbidden affairs with courtesans, that is, with prostitutes? If so, his view is contrary not only to the license of this age, but also to the custom and concessions of our ancestors. When was this not a common practice? When was it blamed? When was it forbidden? Also, in addition to all of that, you also had pederasty, men with boys, which was also accepted and common. It was almost expected in certain relationships, such as between a soldier and and, and his armor bearer. Divorce also was extremely common. It was accepted and it was easy. No formal proceeding was required. If one spouse announced the marriage was over and walked away, that was the end of the marriage. And in all of these various practices, the ancients were simply imitating their gods. In Homer's Iliad, for example, Zeus, though he was uh, married, according to legend, to the goddess Hera, he bragged by name of the many goddesses and nymphs and women he had bedded, not to mention the homosexual affairs with gods and men, which he left off the list. Now, into this mix, you got to add one more element that's extremely counterintuitive, at least to us, and that is you have to uh, add the element of asceticism and celibacy because the culture also embraced denial of the body as well as license for the body. So when you look at this kind of sexual excess and license, and then you look at the other hand at asceticism and celibacy, they see it's counterintuitive that they would go together. But in reality, they were like fraternal twins. You look at them, they don't look anything the same. But in fact, they sprang from the same womb at the same time. And what they came from was the underlying pagan belief that all evil was connected to matter. All evil was connected to the physical, material world. All evil is connected then to our body, all human evil. That was the underlying belief. That then produced 
two different approaches to how we're supposed to live. Because salvation for them was represented by escaping from the material world, leaving the body behind, leaving the material world behind. That was salvation to them. Question is, how do we live in the meantime while we're here in this material world? Two approaches developed. One approach said, the body is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. We're going to leave it behind. It's going to be forgotten. And therefore, it doesn't matter what we do in the body. So live it up. That was the hedonistic approach. The other approach said, no, the body needs to be treated harshly. It needs to have its desires uh, starved and throttled. So that was the ascetic approach. Put all of that together into a cultural cocktail and you have the culture of the empire into which the gospel of Christ first came. Now this culture I've just described was so powerful and so pervasive that it relentlessly pressured Christians to accommodate and incorporate its beliefs and its practices into the Christian life and the life of the church. Paul is writing in our sermon text to the church there in Corinth. And the church in Corinth is famous in Christian circles for being the problem church. Paul's two letters to the church in Corinth is is just dealing with one problem after another. All over the boards, problems here, problems there, all kinds of problems within that church. Every single problem that Paul addresses in his letters to the Corinthian church have to do with elements of the culture that are making inroads into the congregation there in Corinth. And so when it comes to sexuality, we see Paul dealing with both immorality on the one hand, sexual license, and with asceticism on the other. In chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, for example, Paul has to deal with a, a man, a professing Christian, coming to worship there who is sleeping with his father's wife. So this would be like his stepmother, technically. He, so Paul's got to deal with that in the congregation in Corinth. In chapter 6 in our sermon text, we see him talking about not joining yourself to a harlot. Now, why would he have to say that to a Christian congregation? Because it's common. It's just what everybody did. It was part of life at that time. It was accepted. And so there's a lot of pressure for them to accommodate that in their Christian doctrine, and in their Christian practice. So Paul has to make a big argument about why that is completely unacceptable according to Christian belief and practice. Then when we get to chapter 7, Paul has to deal with married Christian couples who are practicing celibacy. They're married Christian couples who have no sexual relationship. Because they believe, again, there's that influence of that the body is evil. It needs to be denied. It needs to be repressed. Paul's dealing with all of that. That's all coming from the culture into the church. And what I want to do is point out five basic biblical truths that Paul keeps arguing to the Corinthian congregation to correct these various errors, to help them to understand what is the truth basis 
for how we must live. Because everything that Paul does, everything we see him writing, as well as the rest of the apostles, they never just make stuff up. They never just say, we got to have some rules around here, do this and don't do that. They're always laying down, here is what God has done in the way that he created us. And here has, is what God has done in, when he redeemed us in Christ. Here is who he has made us. And therefore, because of this truth, because of this reality, here is how we have to live. So let's look at these five truths. Number one, having been made righteous in union with Christ, we must live in light of that union. We can no longer live in the sins Christ came to deliver us from. I'll say that again. Having been made righteous in union with Christ, we must live in light of that union. We can no longer live in the sins Christ came to deliver us from. That, in essence, is what Paul is saying in verses 9 through 11 of our text. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. What is unrighteousness in the Bible? It has nothing to do with matter or the material world or our bodies directly. Rather, unrighteousness in the Bible, it's not connection with matter, it's disconnection from the one true God stemming from our rejection of his will and abusing of his gifts. All the various sexual sins come down to that. They are an abuse of God's gift of sex. Every sin you can name in any area is the abuse of some good thing that God gave to us. And now we're taking it, following the evil one, we're twisting it away from its proper proportion and purpose and and what it's supposed to be used for, and therefore it goes from being a blessing to being a curse. So stated differently, unrighteousness in the Bible, you see, is a relational term. To the pagans, unrighteousness has to do with metaphysics, with being, being in contact with the material world. The evil is in the stuff. It's in the things The Bible says the evil is not in the stuff because God created everything very good. The evil in the Bible, unrighteousness in the Bible, is a relationship term because we were created for a relationship with the living God and with one another. So unrighteousness in the Bible is failure to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and failure to love our neighbors as ourselves. Every problem you can name flows down from that. And so Paul lists the results of of the biblical concept of unrighteousness. He says, do not be deceived, neither fornicators. That means sex outside of marriage. Um, Idolaters. Honoring anything, uh, anyone or anything other than the one true God with the love and loyalty, devotion, worship and obedience that is due to him alone. Nor adulterers, that would be those who are married having sex outside of marriage. 
nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. Paul is very specific here, naming both participants in a homosexual act, whatever role that they are fulfilling. He's naming them both to be very specific. Nor thieves, nor covetous, having resentfulness toward others because you see they have something you don't that you want. Even that hard attitude of covetousness. Drunkards, that's abusing God's gift of wine. Revilers, that means taking somebody's good name away because of what you're spreading about them. Nor um, extortioners, that means con men, uh, setting up fraud schemes, swindling people out of their money. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul is quick to say, it's such as some of you, but that was then. That's who you used to be. That's who you were. But Christ changed all that. You were washed. You were sanctified. That is, God set you apart for himself. And you were justified. You were declared righteous and perfect in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's the truth. That's who you are now. You have to tell the truth in the way you live. You have to live out what Christ has done. Truth number two, the body is not evil or irrelevant, and it will not be destroyed or discarded, but raised up in eternal life. The body is not evil or irrelevant, and it will not be destroyed or discarded by God, but raised up in eternal life. That's what Paul is getting at in verses 12 through 14. Again, this pagan idea that the body is evil or irrelevant, that it's going to be discarded or destroyed, therefore it either doesn't matter what we do in the body. You see, that's what's behind these slogans in verses 12 and 13. All things are lawful for me, and foods for the stomach, and the stomach's for food, but God will destroy both it and them. What you have to understand, what, uh, and if you don't understand this, 1 Corinthians gets very confusing. Paul's opponents within the congregation who were trying to justify all this behavior had written Paul a letter prior to Paul's letter back to them. Paul is answering various questions that they raised. And at different points, he is quoting their letter stating their position and then is answering them. So it's not Paul saying, all things are lawful for me, or foods for the stomach and stomach for food, but God will destroy both it and them. That's what his opponents were saying in their letter. Paul is quoting them back to themselves and then setting them straight. So he's answering their slogans by pointing out that everything comes back to loving God and neighbor, and therefore Everything we ha- we do has to be considered in terms of what is helpful, what blesses God and our neighbor. So he quotes their slogan, all things are lawful for me. And Paul says, yeah, but not all things are helpful. Who's being blessed? Anybody? Is God? Is your neighbor? Are you? And then he quotes their slogan again. All things are lawful for me. But then, and he, then he adds, but I will not be brought under the power of any. 
where is this going, this behavior you're talking about? All things are lawful for you, but if it renders you a slave, get a clue. So Paul also says that God is not going to destroy or discard our bodies. That's not where redemption leads. It leads rather to resurrection, the glorification of our bodies in conformity to Christ's glorified resurrection body. Verse 14, he says, God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by our power. See, Paul never teaches, nor does the New Testament that the bodies are all going to be destroyed. That's not what they teach. It teaches resurrection. And so that's precisely the fact that God is going to conform us to the body of Christ is why the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body, verse 13. In other words, God created the body in the beginning. It's not for these illicit purposes. The body was created to glorify God, and God is going to glorify our body in the great resurrection. And that's so important for us to understand even today. Um, We may not love our bodies, but Christ does, and the Father does, and the Holy Spirit does, and God is going to raise up our bodies in glorified life in conformity to Christ's body. And that leads us then to the third truth. Both immorality and asceticism are wrong. Both immorality and asceticism are wrong. This is what he's talking about in verses 13 and 15. We've already covered the immorality part. What about asceticism? What about this practice in the Corinthian congregation where married couples were saying, the, the holiest way of life is celibacy. So you have married couples living in celibacy. Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul refers to teachings like forbidding to marry, exalting celibacy as being spiritually superior to marriage, or forbidding certain foods, denying the body. Paul calls those the doctrines of demons in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. He said all of that kind of ascetic teaching is the doctrine of demons. You see, Satan does not care which ditch we slide off the road into as long as we slide off the road into one or the other. Immorality or asceticism makes no difference to the evil one. For he's behind them both. They're both departures from God's design and God's will. In verse 4 of 1 Timothy, uh, Paul explains the truth. Every creature of God is good. And nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. If it's received in faith as a gift from God. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 21 and 23, Paul explains that ascetic-type teaching, the evil is in the thing, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. He says all of that is of no use in battling against the sinful flesh because that kind of teaching and practice, that is the flesh. That's just another form of the flesh. The flesh has a lot of different costumes it can put on and wear. And so 
we need to be very wary as we understand the way our own sinful minds work and the way the evil one works. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul is quoting his opponents again. Listen. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, what did they write to him? It is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's not what Paul is saying. That's what they were saying. He's quoting them. He's answering them. They were saying, even if you're married, you should be celibate. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. So Paul comes back and he says, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her. Notice, due her, because of the relationship that God created. Likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Where does all this go? With each spouse having authority over the other one's body, this goes to yes. Sex is yes in marriage. It is no everywhere else. That's the way God uh, created it. So this ties in with Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, that we are not our own, for Christ has bought us and the Spirit dwells in us. That's the way God showed ownership in the Old Testament over the temple, over the tabernacle. What does he do? He puts his spirit in the temple, the glory cloud with the fire and the cloud in the temple, in the tabernacle. What is God doing by that? He's saying, this is mine. This belongs to me. This is my house. What is God doing when he puts his spirit in each one of us? He's saying, this is mine. This is my son. This is my daughter. This belongs to me. My son has purchased this one with his blood. And see, that's the foundation of the entire Christian life. You do not belong to yourself. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to Christ. What is the the great first question in the Heidelberg Catechism? What is my only hope in life and death? That I am not my own but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the comfort in life and death. And so here you see Paul taking the same kind of thinking and applying it to marriage. He's basically saying to a husband and a wife, you are not your own. You belong to Christ first, and then you belong to your spouse. You're way in the back in third place. And we see in Malachi chapter 2, God talks about husband and wife. And it says, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? Now, what he seems to be saying there is that in the same way that uh, the spirit of Christ inhabits each one of us as believers, but he also inhabits the whole congregation as a household of God, Paul uses it both ways in Corinthians itself. In that same kind of way, he seems to be saying that with a marriage of believers, it's not just the fact that the spirit inhabits the husband and the wife, and therefore you have two people together that are both inhabited. No, he inhabits the union as well. 
Because the marriage union is something that God created before the fall. And so if, if the basis of the whole Christian life is I am not my own, I don't belong to me, I belong to Christ, the whole basis of Christian marriage is this. It's not your marriage. It doesn't belong to you. You're in it, but it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. That's why he put his spirit there. Let me tell you something. That changes everything in terms of how you approach marriage. And that's where 95% of all the marital problems lie on that point. Not on the special roles of husbands and wives, but on this whole point of who does this marriage belong to? doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Christ. Truth number four, freedom is not autonomy. It is not belonging to yourself, but belonging to the one who created you, loved you, and gave himself for you. Freedom is not autonomy, that is self-law. Freedom is not belonging to yourself. It is belonging to the one who created you, loved you, and gave himself for you. Today, the concept of freedom, and not only freedom, but blessedness, is to belong only to yourself. To not have any ties or obligations. No relationships that you can't extricate yourself from at will at any time. We belong only to myself. I live only for myself. You know what that is? A person who belongs only to themselves? That's an orphan. Go talk to a real orphan and ask them how free they feel. Not free at all. Ask them what they want most. To belong. To belong to somebody besides themselves. To belong to parents. To belong to a family. It's an ache within them. When to belong to Christ is to belong to God and to be a member of his family. And so the Bible teaches us that ultimately, despite what we may think, none of us belongs to ourselves. We either belong to the one who hates us, the evil one, or we belong to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, that is Christ, shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Paul talked about this in his own life in Galatians 2.20. He said, It is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Finally, truth number five. God created the sexual union to reflect the spiritual union we were created for with God. God created the sexual union to reflect the spiritual union we were created for with God. That's what Paul is getting at in verses 16 through 18 of our text. 
For this reason, because the whole sexual uh, union was created to create uh, to reflect the spiritual union we were made for with God, therefore, by definition, sex is only for marriage, and marriage is only for one man with one woman pledged to one another for life. But for only then does it reflect accurately the spiritual union between Christ and the church. This is why Paul is saying in verse 16, Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. He's quoting way back in Genesis before the fall. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now, why is Paul bringing that up? Why is Paul talking about a sexual union and then suddenly he's talking about a spiritual union with the, with the Lord? Because the sexual union was made in the beginning to reflect the spiritual union. So Paul is pointing out the nature of the spiritual union and is saying, therefore, you cannot join yourself to a harlot. So what we see with bottom line, the bottom line here is that as with spirituality, the Bible and the gospel were not conditioned at all by the culture, for indeed they cut directly across the culture. Love required that Christians speak and live the truth. And the truth, as we close this study, is that God has built into the creation and into mankind an unbreakable link between spirituality and sexuality. That's why I noted at the beginning of this message that the sexuality within the Roman Empire reflected the spirituality. And this is true in every time and in every place. This is not just predictable, it is inevitable because this is the way God made the world. Second only to being created Spiritual beings in the image of God, we were created sexual beings, male and female. We were created for monogamy. We were created for monogamy spiritually to the one true God forever. And we were created for sexual monogamy to one member of the opposite sex pledged for life. Why do we pledge for life? Because God pledged to us forever. Why do we not have more than one spouse? Because Christ only has one bride. You see the way that works. And given the way God has made the world, whenever a society loses spiritual monogamy to the one true God, the same society will lose sexual monogamy within marriage. It's not just predictable, it's inevitable. Because God would have it so. That's why the tale that Paul tells in Romans chapter 1 of of the downward death spiral of, of society in turning away from the living God, you see a spiritual turning away from God, and then you see a sexual turning away from God's design. It is a spiritual, sexual, two-step march to death. And every time there is a greater, greater descent into sexual degradation, it is always because of a prior spiritual further turning away from the living God. And it's in our own country, it is no accident 
that at the same time America as a whole went from orthodox Christian belief to Unitarianism, denying the Trinity and so forth, to secular humanism, the religion of man as man, to the anything-goes spirituality that you see in our culture today. At the same time, America as a society went from dedicated Christian marriages to husbands having mistresses on the side to people openly cohabitating with one another to same-sex marriage to the anything-goes sexuality that you see today. Any culture that embraces whatever form of spirituality you want will embrace whatever sexuality you want. It is inevitable because God would have it so. This is part of the wake-up call for us to realize what is happening. There, There is no turning back from this toxic cocktail other than turning back to the living God. Now, yes, we need to conform our lives to what he says, but there is no doing that if turning to the living God through Christ is not at the center. So I submit these things to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.